Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, host of Nowhere. Today, my guests are Masood Kalantari, CEO of The Rubik, and Luke Buckbarrow, Chief Growth Officer also at The Rubik. Hi, guys, and welcome to Nowhere. Hey, John, how's it going? Fantastic. It's great to have you guys here today. Yeah, no, thanks so much for the invite. Hey, John, pleasure to have you. So today, we're going to talk about warehousing, robotics, and how geospatial technology plays a role in delivering our online order to us as quickly as possible. But before we get there, let's start with what a modern warehouse looks like inside. So when I order something online, what happens inside the warehouse to ship it to me? One thing to start with is supply chain is something that I think people maybe have a little bit of a, let's say, minimized view on. We take it as that supply chain is the largest industrial ecosystem probably in the world. The global supply chain management market is about $47 billion. So if you think about the management of a market being that high, you can only imagine how big the market itself is. But really, what we like to start it from is that it's a really big puzzle, thousands of pieces. So if we break it down into really simply about six or seven points, so you have the receiving of a product. So John, that beautiful shirt you're wearing, let's say you get online and you order it from Abercrombie and Fitch. In your mind, or from the average day person's mind, you can just actually imagine that you order it, someone gets an order on an iPad, the iPad is then distinguished to go get the order, and the order comes and arrives at your door. But it starts even sooner from that. The farmer in Vietnam that plants the grain that's then turned into natural or synthetic fabric, it's so much more vast and complicated. But if we break it into seven parts, you have the receiving of a product, you have the sorting and storing of a product, you have the inventory management waiting for you know an order to be placed, then you have the order fulfillment side, you actually order the shirt and someone has to go pick up the box with that shirt inside of a warehouse. And then you have the packaging and labeling single individual packaging of a shirt and then off the label. Then you have shipping and logistics of it. And then you have the return process if you don't like it. That's a huge process. And I think a lot of people tend to think that Abercrombie goes and gets a shirt and Fitch puts it in a box and sends it off to you. But these warehouses are massive. These warehouses involve a lot of people. So what are people doing inside these warehouses? And how does that work? Yeah, I think the most understandable viewpoint is think of a Costco. I think all of us probably walk through a Costco in our everyday lives. I know I have. On the main floor, you have what we call full active. So that's where there's individualized pieces that you pick. Let's say oranges, for example. So, you know, my kid loves oranges. I'm on the main floor, so I'm able to go into a box. I pick my orange and I put it in a bag. That would be the picking process. But then there's something called the replenishment process. The replenishment process is above where you look up tall and Costco's are 30 feet, 40 feet high and you have all this big racking. You have palletfuls of boxes of oranges just waiting to be brought down to the floor level and dispensed into that box for a human to then go pick it up. We call this the pick process. Now, right now, you have a person be strapped onto what we call a pick truck or an automated forklift to some degree, and then they go up 30 feet tall. They pick that individualized box full of oranges. They come back down to the floor, and they dump all the oranges into the floor lobby box. Yeah, so right now, warehousing and picking and sorting is a very human-intensive process. And we're going to get to the robotics and automation in a minute. But I guess my first question you know, is, how do they keep track of where everything is in these giant spaces? If someone needs to go find those oranges, how do they know where to find them in there, other than just keeping it all in their brain? Which isn't going to be possible for all these items. The inventory management process, as you can imagine, is something that is 
incredibly complex. So they run on two systems primarily, either a warehouse management system or a warehouse execution system. That system from the first point of entry of a box entering, usually have a sticker or an RFID badge. That sticker will be scanned and the box will be put into a location and that'll be noted inside their software. From there, if it's ever needed to be picked, the actual picker or human or a robot in this case will be notified the location and the badge of that box. They will then make sure that that's correct by scanning that badge a second time and then the order will then be fulfilled. So it's really just a large CAD drawing or something that says all the oranges are stored in this location. All of these items are stored this row, this shelf. You got it. Amazing. That sounds really old school. It sounds like warehousing in that instance hasn't changed much since the, I don't know, let's say 1800s. We're living in the 21st century, but it sounds like warehousing is still in the past. So tell me about the current state of automation in warehouses today. I think one really important thing to mention here is, to your point, it's not necessarily this old process. It's that there's the need for one word, flexibility. Humans right now account for 50 to 65% of an operation's operational budget. A big, big number if you really think about it. But even more so, what we love about the human species is that we're flexible. I can walk, I can run, I can jump, I can skip. I'm really an agnostic human. I'm agnostic to my environment. I'm flexible to my day. If things change, I can adapt. What we really don't see in automation today is that adaptability, that on-demand response of, okay, something is different. What do I do? And what we're really proud of at the Rubik is that currently we believe that we offer the most flexible and agnostic robotic system on the market. What we really took was that we love that humans are flexible and that we love that robots in nature are perfect, something that, you know, obviously the cliche saying of perfection is unattainable. But we wanted to merge those two together, creating the most flexible and perfect robotic system on the market. I can definitely see a need for flexibility. Boxes move, things aren't where you expect them to be. Maybe items aren't where they should be. And I know that at the Rubik, you guys have built a unique robot system that doesn't require a whole lot of reinvestment into things like flooring and shelving. And I guess I'm keen to hear about that. But also, I really want to know, what did you do with your robot so that it can safely navigate a warehouse? How does it know where it is? How does it know where it needs to go? What's happening on this unit? And can you describe it for our listeners? Yeah, maybe I can take on this question. From navigation perspective, our robotic system has got like two different navigation. One of them is on a floor navigation and one of them is a height navigation per se. So the combination of the two provide 3D navigation in the warehouse. The floor navigation of our robotic system relies on LIDARs, which is a technology that's combination of lasers and LIDARs, as the name suggests. So these LIDARs, there is one in the front of the robot and the other one on the back of the robot. And the way they're designed and implemented on a robotic system is that together they provide 360 degrees of vision around the robot and the surrounding area, but on a planar axis. So what does it mean? It means that on the AutoCAD model that you did mention, imagine like a 2D AutoCAD model that the robot would navigate on the floor, and it can actually navigate it with plus minus five millimeter accuracy. All right. So you have a mobile robot that includes laser scanners and proximity to sensors and a number of other positioning devices. How do you make a map of the warehouse to begin with? How do you get that information? Do you get it from the supplier? No. As a matter of fact, all we need to do is to drive a robot one time on a warehouse manually. 
What happens is that once we drive the robot on a warehouse in a manual position, the LIDAR starts to record and create a digital waypoint in a warehouse. So therefore, within the entire digital waypoint and within the entire navigation, if you turn a loop and complete a loop, now the robot would know all the objects, all the obstacles, and all the pathways. By the use of digital waypoints, that's not seen to us, but it is embedded on the software. Now, once we have a floor navigation system completed, now we are talking about the height navigation. How would the robot know at what height to go and pick an item? We do have a camera vision system that's utilizing advanced AI algorithms to localize objects. So when the robot, for the first time again, is navigating in a warehouse, these cameras that's embedded on the arm of the robot, they will start to go up and down and record the entire aisles and the entire items within those aisles and possibly see all the boxes, barcodes, and create spatial waypoints on the map again in order to localize those boxes. So next time when one of those boxes is ordered, the robot would remember which box is where and can go and pick it from that location. Okay, I see. So the very first time you get your robot to a new warehouse, you have to sort of pilot it around manually, take it on a tour of the warehouse, and then it uses its onboard laser system and computer vision system to make its own map of the facility. That map includes where the shelves are, but also where each individual box is, building a real-time inventory of where the items are. That's absolutely correct. We do even have a different set of sensors that's embedded again in the body of the robot. So as we navigate within a warehouse, these specific sensors are only utilized to localize the height of shelves. So therefore, with the help of those sensors, we can autonomously also figure the height of each shelves at each location and whatnot. And therefore, that information can communicate back to the vision system, the robot saying that, you know, I detect a shelf. So anything above this, it should be some SKUs that you should be looking to detect them in a 3D fashion. How does it know which box to pick? Like with a human, it can read the words on it or it can identify it, it can look at a picture, but how does your robot understand which box is the one that it's looking for? Very interesting question. It depends totally based on operation. Our robot does not require to have a barcode to pick a box based on a barcode because it would see a box in 3D and it can go and pick it if it knows the location of it. So the way it works is that the robot would integrate with customer's warehouse management system. In the initial setup of the robot, customers can possibly tell us the location of each boxes or each SKUs items, or they could let us know the barcode that we should be looking for. So as we go into a certain location and expecting to see an item or a box or whatnot, we can communicate back and forth with the warehouse management system of the customer on a certain barcode that we are seeing and we can make sure if this is the right barcode that we should be pulling or it is the right dimension of a product that we should be pulling. Going back to the beginning a little bit, I'm curious to understand why automation is valuable in these warehouse spaces. It makes sense that perhaps people might not want to do some of that work, but I'm curious to know, what the values and drivers are in automation and to what degree it's affecting logistic supply chain and warehousing. When it comes down to it, it's not a matter of there's this tagline of 40% of the world will be taken over by AI, ML, we're getting rid of jobs to a certain degree. It's not that. It's really just what's needed. We have this tagline that automation is no longer a nice to have, but a must. 
you look at it from a labor perspective, which is probably the biggest for a lot of people in terms of pain points, 55 to 65% of all costs associated with an operation inside a warehouse go directly to labor. But if you think about 35,000 serious accidents occur annually in North America, because of those 35,000, 95 million lost workdays occurred. I'm no mathematician. I only thought there was about 365 days in a year. I didn't know 95 million were possible. But even breaking that down even more from a cost perspective, $84 million a week go out in insurance premium payments directly related to either non-fatal or even fatal injuries, especially when you're thinking about a picking at height scenario. Our robot goes 33 feet high. This comes with quarterly training. This comes with certifications. Also, if you look at it from a pandemic standpoint, obviously supply chain, warehousing, distribution was considered an essential service, but it really made people rethink is this a field I want to be in? For every 100 jobs in the supply chain space, John, there's only 73 people on earth today that'll take it. So you're saying we got a big labor shortage in the warehousing industry. We can't find enough people who want to work these jobs. Not even close. You know, Even if we look at it from a qualitative standpoint, Texas has come out with a fully autonomous McDonald's. The service industry, the warehousing industry, supply chain, anything that is easily automated, I believe will be automated in the future. Even if we look at it from a space utilization standpoint, you know, we're in Canada, good old O Canada. Our retail rental prices and our industrial rental prices are through the roof. 28% increase last year. The average lease rate inside of Mississauga, kind of Canada's distribution hub, is $21 a square foot. That's crazy for warehousing space. I would expect that in kind of the office space category, but in warehousing, that's wild. So the other kind of lead in there then is with this robot, you can do mapping, you can do positioning, you understand where the objects are. What kind of efficiencies and benefits does that lead to? Because if you know where everything is, does that let you like pre-stage things? How does that help? Optimization is the best word. We optimize all levels of operation, especially when it comes to pick and packing optimization with space. An average robot, to a certain degree, can maybe 1 to 2x the overall space efficiencies. We can upwards of 3x that because of triple deep placing and packing. Our robot will pack deeper. Our robot will pick deeper. Triple deep means you can put three boxes on a single row, right? Box behind box behind box. Exactly. A bit of an arbitrary term, but exactly. Three boxes behind one another. Not only that, though, but because we can navigate from both sides, we can actually put six boxes in one centralized area because we can pick the third box at the deepest point and the third box at the deepest point, either from one side of the aisle or the other side of the aisle. Not only that, though, space is king. Going higher is where the market is going. The average warehouse nowadays is being built with a 42-foot height clearance, unlike 32 the last 10 years and 19 10 years before that. Sure, because if you have these robots now, you can go higher. You don't have to rely on a person or a ladder or someone strapped to a forklift or some crazy health and safety violation, right? It becomes a whole lot easier to extend upwards. Exactly. And even if we think of them a real pound-for-pound data, with our pilot partner that we have in Mississauga, right now in a 2,200-square-foot, let's say, rectangle sample set, at full capacity with a human picker or packer, they can place around 2,808 boxes in that allotment. With a Rubik-style bot that places triple deep, we can actually increase that up to 5,505. It's a really big number for our clients because for them, $21 a square foot eats into their margins so heavily. If we can make a million square feet act like 500, we've done our job. Amazing. And it all comes down to being able to know where everything is inside the warehouse, being able to get to it quickly and be able to understand the relationship between those locations. Well, even if you look at it from a geospatial data point, Warehouse management systems can determine the most efficient picking routes for workers or robots. 
We're seeing this real time with our pilot. There are human-centric zones. We are actually routing mapping inside of our robotic system to make sure it doesn't necessarily cross paths with a human. Why? Our robot moves two meters per second. Not to say that it's incredibly advanced and safe and has all the safety ratings and LADARs that it requires, but a human and our robot do not necessarily collaborate together in the best form. How fast does a human move in meters per second? Oh, God. I don't know, Masood. Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> not that fast. Not that fast. Okay. A better comparison I would be able to provide is the number of the pitch per hour for a human in the types and similar types of operations to what we do, which means a human driving by a forklift, putting all the straps on and going at height, pick a box and bring it over for fulfillment or replenishment is probably anywhere around 8 to 10 picks an hour. We offer in the range of 150 to 200 picks an hour per robot. Wow. So there's a significant savings in there. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's not only the speed, but it's the efficiency and it's the understanding of where everything is within the warehouse, the ability to move between it quickly like that. Masood, you know, as we look to the future, then what do you see in terms of warehouse automation and how will this evolve over time? What we are seeing today is that Obviously, the growth of e-commerce is pouring gasoline on the warehouse automation fire. What I mean by that is that as larger players are entering into 3PL and automating further, the reality of things are current warehousing operations. The operations that are smaller or are medium-sized and they are currently working in supply chain, these guys are under pressure. Why? Because in the warehousing industry, the contracts for these companies like say 3PLs or distribution centers is not like before they had really long-term contracts. The contracts are shorter because the competition is tougher. So when these guys usually engage in some sorts of automating their operation, they are talking about probably there's two to three years left of their contracts. So the warehousing industry is no longer looking for the ROIs of what they used to kind of like work with seven, eight years or five to six years of ROI. They are looking for automating and adopting automation with extremely fast ROI to their operation. Why? Because the length of the contract might run out sooner than their ROI for the automation. And everyone knows that automation is not cheap. It's very, very costly. Yeah, so if you have a shorter contract, you don't want to go in and install a giant system, a giant capital system that requires super level floors and odd structures and that kind of thing, right? Because you may not be able to make it back before the contract expires. 100%. So therefore, the name of the game is Brownfield. And that's where we're going to live and die. Our main focus into entry into this market, and we think there's going to be a lot more going on, is the current facilities that exist today. There are facilities that are being built and manufactured by builders, and they are going to enter into the market. But the vast majority of the market are the ones that are operating within these, these facilities, and there's an operation going on as of today. So from their perspective, they don't want to slow down in order to speed up with automation. Right. So with an existing warehouse, doesn't want to shut it down do a giant retrofit, and then move everything back in just to get going faster. Right? They don't want to give up that time. Exactly. And that's what we think the market is going. The market is going towards adoptable, flexible operation and adoption on a brownfield operations. That's how the smaller player can compete and combat with the bigger players who've got like tens of millions of dollars of budget on their operations. 
For sure. And with all these robots and mapping systems and everything being integrated, do you ever think we'll get to a point where humans are no longer in the warehouse, on the warehouse floor? Is that something you see in the near future, like the next three to five years? I would say to some extent, I do. The reason for that is that companies like us and systems like us, we are offering that replenishment. But as we are looking into the other technologies emerging into the market, there's a lot of robots, a humanoid robots. We have seen videos of them in warehouses. And these robots are getting more and more and more experts into opening up a box and picking an item off a box and putting them on the side and then closing the box and whatnot. It, the industry is not there today because even opening and closing boxes is very challenging task still for robots, but they have started that. We are right now expecting, like in the near future, as we are bringing these boxes or bins to fulfillment centers or pick stations or take them back, we expect to see more and more and more robots on those stations taking things off a bin or off. Like there are already lots of solutions that are picking arm that can pick from bins, but there's no solution today to pick off a box. It's interesting you mentioned humanoid robots. I mean, I tend to think that humanoid robots are a bit of a long shot. We have lots of robots in our life already. They wash our dishes, they wash our clothes, they move things around warehouses, they do all kinds of things. But many of them, and yours included, certainly don't look human. Will the Tesla bot or these other humanoid robots actually make it, do you think? Or are they a sci-fi future that we won't ever achieve? I would think this is going to happen within the next three to five years for sure. Three to five humanoid robots. Yes, there is a company that we know of, and they have entered specifically a human and robots into warehouse automation, and they are entering into picking objects, moving bins and picking objects or from boxes or bins in a humanoid way, for sure. Interesting. That's crazy. I mean, you talked at the beginning about making your system flexible like humans, adaptable like humans, but not humanoid shaped. So it's interesting to hear that there's a possibility of that coming in the near future. Well, Luke, Masood, thank you very much for being here. It was interesting to learn about the geospatial technology being used in warehouses today and where we might go in the future. Thank you very much. I want to thank you and appreciate your time as well for having us here. Thank you so much for the opportunity, for sure. It's my pleasure. It's great to hear all about it. Yeah, thanks so much, John. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, And you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.